please and guide us and help us to understand what you have for us out of this passage, out of your word, your wonderful word. May my words be your words, please, God. Um, I'm humbled to be able to just even do this, and I know that I can't do it at all without your Holy Spirit leading and guiding. So we invite that this morning to do a work in our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Prayer is an interesting thing, wouldn't you agree? Very interesting thing that prayer is. On one hand, um, we often struggle with prayer. We struggle to truly understand sometimes even the significance or even the mechanisms of how we should do it. Or we come to times when we're dry or in our prayer life, we don't know what to do. We haven't done it for a while. All these different things. Prayer can just be a really interesting thing. Yet, on the other hand, of the difficult things that we go through with prayer, um, the longer that we follow Jesus, Really, the more, and I don't know if you can relate to this, I'm sure you can, the more that we follow Jesus, the more that we come to realize that really prayer is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. It's an amazing thing. In an article, one article I read this week, an author wrote this, he says, prayer is one of the deepest joys of the Christian life. It is almost too good to be true that in Jesus we have the very ear of God. What an indescribable gift that the God whose greatness is beyond comprehension actually stoops to listen to us and is even more ready to hear us than we are to speak. I love that. That is so true. That is awesome. Yeah, really, the truth is that in many ways, prayer really is a mystery, isn't it? It really is a mystery. I mean, as we're going to see, we're going to see this morning, though, it's one of the primary means, though, that God uses to help us really to align our will with his. So often we think prayer is just about, God, I need this, or God, do this. But really what we're going to see this morning in this morning's passage as we continue in Acts is he really uses it to help us to align our will with his, to, to learn that he's not only in complete control and that he can be completely trusted, but really that God invites us into the fulfillment of his plans, his overall plans through our prayers. It's a really mysterious thing, and we're going to see that today. And we're not going to clear up that complete mystery this morning, but we're going to dive into that mystery a little bit this morning. So in this morning's passage, we're actually going to look at the return of some persecution to the early church in Jerusalem. Remember last week, we looked at Antioch. The church was exploding. Awesome things were happening. Just wonderful stuff. Now the tables turn, and we look back to Jerusalem, where there's this persecution uh, that they start to face, and how God ultimately, we're going to see how he fulfills his plans through the prayers of his people. So let's look, let's start, we're in chapter 12 now. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. It says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some of those who belonged to the church. He killed James and the brother of the, James, the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. 
So what we're seeing here is this persecution that has returned to the church in Jerusalem. This time, it's actually coming directly from the, from the ruler, the person who rules in that region, Herod. Herod Agrippa is this guy's name. Now, to understand a little bit where he comes from and who Herod is, understand a little bit of this guy, his uncle was Herod Antipas, the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. His grandfather was Herod the Great. And we remember how wonderful a guy that was. That guy was, remember, he's the one that slaughtered all the innocent children right after Jesus was born in fear that we can't let this prophecy happen. We're going to kill all the kids. So this is the family lineage that this guy is coming from, okay? Now, he's a skilled politician as well. Very skilled. What we've learned, I think, in our society, we learned that politicians learn very well how to buddy up and get on the good side of the people that they know will kind of help them out a little bit or or help things keep the peace a little bit and things. And that's exactly what Herod does here. He's really popular with the Jewish leadership. Very much so. He really sought out to stay in their good graces, which really would account for this um, animosity that he seems to have towards this new movement that really, remember, the Jewish leaders are not excited about this new thing that's happening with these Christians. So Herod jumps on the wagon here. He says, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make them even happier. And that's what he does. So he decides to aggressively go after the church. And in his zeal, he executes James. You got to understand, James was one of the apostles. So here we have the first martyr of the apostles being martyred, first of the apostles being martyred. And seeing that he saw that this made the Jewish leaders happy, he proceeds then to arrest Peter. Now, he was most likely going to do the same thing with Peter, but it was a Jewish holiday. And according to Jewish holidays, it wasn't a kosher thing to do to kill somebody on that. On that. So he decides we're going to put him in jail and we're going to have him, we're going to have him guarded. And it's going to wait till this holiday passes. Now, to understand how serious Herod took this, having him and Peter in jail, it says that he had four squads guarding him. What that means is he put 16 soldiers in charge of guarding Peter. Four of the soldiers would be on duty for three hours at a time. Two would be directly chained to Peter, and two would be guarding the gate of the prison. Herod was taking this pretty serious, really serious. So that's what he was doing here. And so this is what the church in Jerusalem was dealing with. This is what they, the persecution they were in, the situation they're in. One of their disciples is dead, and Peter, their leading spokesman, spokesman, is in prison, possibly awaiting the same kind of fate. What should they do? What would we do? What would you do if that was the case? What would you do? Do they begin to protest? Do they get the picket signs out there? Do they rally uh, support? Do they gather evidence and bring that before the authorities to somehow get Peter out of that uh, situation? What do they do? Do they, or do they just worry? I think we're, I'm, I know I'm good at that one. Just worrying and they're mourning over, oh man, this is terrible. What are we going to do? Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt the way that something in your, about something in your life before, somehow your life, something has happened that's turned your life upside down? Something, diff- some difficult situation, somehow 
the sense of stability is suddenly gone or it's taken away somehow from you, or you're simply faced with some particularly difficult situation, what do you do? What do you do when that happens? When you kind of feel like the rug has been pulled out from under you? And it's not to be a major life-threatening thing. It could just be something that, oh, just takes away the imbalance of life and that ease that we were, that we were sensing. How do we respond? Well, let's look at how this early church responded. Check it out. Look in verse 5. This is how they responded to this particular situation. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. So how does the church respond to this situation? What do we see here? I'm sure there was some worry. I'm sure there was a little bit of fear and the different things like that. But what they did, they didn't seek revenge for James's execution. They didn't formulate a plan to plead Peter's case. They're told that they pray. They pray for Peter. And, and I believe this, we're going to learn here, we're going to see that this act, they actually prayed very specifically. I, have, I really think that we've got some stuff we can learn from this passage about how they prayed, how they specifically prayed. And what we're going to see is first it says that they prayed earnestly. Number one on your notes, and sorry those notes are so blurry, I had to print it at home and I have a terrible printer at home. Um, so... Um, First one, it says, for him, what it means to, for, to pray earnestly um, here, it says the word earnestly indicates that they prayed intensely and without ceasing, okay? Not only was their prayer intense, but it was continual. They continued to do it. That's what this word earnestly means. And really, here's the cool thing. If you really want to understand what it means, it's the same word that describes how Jesus prayed to his father in the Garden of Semite. Remember when he prayed this, when he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And being in agony, here it is, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the way the early church was praying. This, was with the, this is the intensity that the early church was praying. This means what it means is they were agonizing in prayer for Peter, probably both day and night. Ever done that before? Found yourself agonizing in prayer day and night. Usually it takes something like this kind of thing that they're going through for that to make this kind of thing happen. And this is what they do. But what does this intense prayer look like? What does it mean? I think a lot of times we hear people say, you know, we just, we just need to pray about it. We should pray about that very thing. Or I'll pray for you. And then we go to prayer and we go, well, God, just, just bless them. Or God, would you really do something really work? Would you, would you just kind of help? And we, and we pray, we, or we play a really good prayer, and we pray it once, real short, and we're done. What we're going to see here is we're getting a model for how we should be praying about things and how we can learn to line ourselves up with God's will. So how, what, did, what did their prayers look like? Well, we don't know exactly what they prayed for. We're not told here, but you can imagine they probably prayed for strength, right, for Peter. They prayed for courage for Peter. They prayed for peace for him. This verse says that they prayed earnestly for Peter. They, they were praying for him. They weren't praying, God, don't let this happen to us. We need to pray for Peter. We need you to act. This, Peter needs you. I'm sure they probably even prayed that he would get released. They were praying earnestly these things. 
Yet ultimately, here's what I believe that they were really doing, is they were praying earnestly that God's will would be done. Ultimately, that God's will would be done. The apostles were, all, were, were most likely already t- teaching them the concept that we read later in 1 John, where he, John writes this, where he says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that have been made of him, asked of him. So what does praying look like? What does it mean to pray according to God's will? What does that, what does that look like specifically? How do you pray according to God's will? I came across this blogger this week uh, who said this. I thought it was a really good way to say it. He says, praying God's will is being honest with him about what we want in prayer but also surrendering our lives and the outcome of our prayers to him. It's wanting our lives to align with God's will more than our own desires. That's what it means to pray God's will. You see, prayer isn't about getting God to comply with our plans. Isn't that so often, if we examine our prayers, isn't that so often what they look like? God, here's what I want. Would you please do it? And he wants us to pray to some degree for the desires of our heart. But so often it's more like, if we were honest with ourselves, it was, God, please, would you align yourself with my will? And that's not, what, that's not what prayer is meant to do. It's meant to be the opposite, actually. Actually, It's meant to look the other side. It's about aligning our will to his. Number two on your notes, praying that God's will would be done means that whatever we are praying about would ultimately somehow bring glory to God and expand his influence in our lives and in the lives of others. That goes for how you pray for someone's illness. That goes for how you pray for someone's job. That goes for how we pray for everything. This has potential. If we think this way about prayer, it has potential to drastically change the way we pray. Drastically. I think so often we stop praying or Christians realize or start to get to the place where I'm just bored with prayer because it's constant that we're praying with the wrong motives so often. Remember, we're told that you don't have because you ask, or you don't have because you ask with the wrong motives. And so often we're asking, our wrong motives means that we're not asking according to God's will. Our desire isn't first and foremost that his influence in our lives would be expanded, that we would know him more, we would know him better, and everybody would know him. We've talked about this before in the men's Bible study. We talked about what it means to learn to pray, go from micro prayers to macro prayers. Instead of praying, Lord, would you help Paul? He's got a really bad back. Would you heal his back? Amen. That's a great prayer, and I'm sure Paul wants you to be praying for that to him. Amen. (laughs) But think about praying that prayer according to God's will. God, we would love you. We would love it for him to be healed. But more than anything, God, due to what he's experiencing in this, may this drive him to you. May this help him to see that it's not about what he can accomplish in his flesh, in his body, but that he is so dependent on you, not only physically, but emotionally, spiritually. Do you see what I'm saying? 
You see how that changes how we pray? Lord, I want my, my kid to love you. I want them to come to know you. Not just because I want them to go to heaven to be a Christian, but I want them to experience all there is to and all the people that they come in contact with. I want you to use their gifts and their talents to be able to bring glory and honor to your kingdom. You see how that changes how we pray about our kids? It changes everything. When we strive to pray according to God's will. And it takes practice. <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is something we pray, this is something we're practicing for our whole lives. So now besides praying earnestly for Peter, we also see another thing here. We see that they pray together. We see something, they pray together as well. You see, they saw the importance of no doubt fervently praying by themselves and individually, but we're also seeing that they did so together as well. Okay, they're together praying. They saw the importance of how much they needed to come together. And this is a great model for us about the significance of praying with other believers. Now, I know some of you go, I don't like to pray out loud or I don't like to pray with other people. I, you know, kind of like what we heard the other Joyce Myers was saying the other thing and that other thing, pray about it and get over it. Um, this is such a vital aspect of the Christian life. Because the truth is there are so many benefits and so many advantages of praying with other believers. I just want to list a few here. And I'm really what I'm doing, I'm taking these from a guy that I, the guy that I had quoted earlier uh, in an article he had, and I've kind of tweaked them a bit, but I thought these were really good. The, number three on your notes, um, uh, the one benefit or advantage of praying with others is added power. Added power. Look at Matthew 18, 19 says. It says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they will ask and it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, we know that this is in context, what he's talking about is church discipline. Okay, don't take that verse out of context and say, wherever two are gathered, you know, you know, this, this verse is talking about church that it, happening in the op of when we come and we discipline someone and we want to come to somebody and, and we feel led to talk to them about their sin. No, we need to bring two people together. It's important that two people are praying about this. But what's happening here is, although it's spoken in that context, this verse still appeals to the principle that there is added power when we unite with other believers to join our hearts, our collective hearts and, collective and our requests to our Father. There's power in that. There's something that, that we get from doing that. Another benefit, number four in your notes, or advantage, is increased unity. Increased unity among believers. I'm going to quote straight from him here on this one. He says this, praying together is one of the single most significant things that we can do to cultivate unity in the church. There is a unity that is a given to those who are partners in Christ and share spiritual life in him. Acts 1.14 says, it was with one accord that the first Christians were devoting themselves to prayer. Already we have the unity of the Spirit, and yet we are to be eager to maintain it, according to Ephesians. So praying together is both an effect, an effect of the unity we share in Christ, and it is a cause for deeper and richer unity it is not only a sign that unity already exists among brothers, but also a catalyst for more. 
Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt like after you got done praying with a group of people that you just kind of felt bonded a little bit more to them? I, I sure have. I know many of you have. We've prayed together. We go, wow, that was awesome. Why do you think so many churches do prayer gatherings? And that's why we talked about coming together in prayer and things like that. It's a powerful thing. All right, another one. Another advantage, uh, benefit or advantage number five on your notes, is that we learn and grow in our prayers. We learn and grow in our prayers. Here's the, here it is. Really, plain and simple, the best way to learn to pray is to pray with other people. It is the best way to pray with other people, especially though, especially with people whose prayers are shaped and guided by Scripture. I'm telling you, there's nothing like being around someone that knows how to pray and their prayer life flows out of the truths of Scripture. They even pray Scripture. What a great model that is. I mean, if you want to learn to pray and if you want to learn to pray effectively, listen to how other mature Christians pray. I cannot tell you how much I feel like my spiritual life has been um, just launched further by just being around other godly men and women when they pray. I just go, wow, that is so cool to see what God is doing. I mean, listen, listen to those, especially when they pray in a way that communicates that there's this true communion with God. And they're not just praying like, God bless this and be around that person. No, they, you sense in their prayer there's a, there's a true communion with God through the way that they, the way that they praise him and the way that they, they thank him and the way that they ask him for things. I remember when I first started to pray with Dan Libby. wish he was here telling this. I remember the first time that I felt, I, I remember after, after we got done praying, I was going, Oh my gosh, that guy has such a cool little childlike faith with God. It was awesome. He was like, it was a conversation. And it was a really authentic and cool one. I go, yes. And that really encouraged me in my prayer life. All right, last one, uh, number six. Finally, another benefit or advantage of praying with others is knowing Jesus more. Knowing Jesus more. Really, it's the greatest benefit, greatest benefit to know Jesus better is when we pray together with other believers, with our limited vision, with, with kind of how what we're only able to see in our perspective, there's really aspects of Christ and aspects of our relationship with God that we're prone to see more clearly than other people. Haven't you ever had that happen? Even in prayer, sometimes I feel like I get a great sermon out of listening to other people's prayers because they have a perspective on Jesus that I wasn't really thinking about or I wasn't emphasizing in my life. I was like, oh, I needed to hear that. And some of us, we're blind to certain things about Christ and we're blind to certain things about who he is or we're fuzzy on it. And when we hear people pray, it's just like, oh, that is so wonderful. Especially when people come together that from all different types of, of organizational pieces. And I, I remember I was, I remember the couple, last couple times I've been in these in prayer groups outside of church. I remember they were just so cool because you were hearing people from different like church backgrounds and different different situations. It's like, oh, that is so cool. That is so cool to hear that. 
I would encourage you to be a part of something where you pray with other people outside of your church. I know Sue, once again, I'll do Sue. That was one of them, actually. I remember going to the Faith Force, the big uh, sales force, big giant thing, and Faith Force had a little prayer thing, and all these people came from all over the world, literally. And we were in this big circle praying, and it was one of the coolest things to hear people praying from a different country, a different denomination, a different thing. And it really encouraged me. I felt like I loved Jesus more. By having people from different, just a different, even different where they came from theologically. It was really, really cool. So I love what Kim, Tim Keller says here. He says, by praying with friends, you will be able to hear and see facets of Jesus that you have not yet perceived. That is so cool. All right. So let's look, let's, let's look now how God answers these earnest prayers and this ongoing and together prayers that the early church does. Look at verse 6. It says this, now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and the light shone in a cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what, he was, what was being done by the angel, if it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street. Immediately, the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jew that the Jewish people were expecting. So really what we're seeing here at the 11th hour, the night before Peter is to appear before judgment, God goes into action. God goes, goes to work. He said, we see that he was sleeping between these, these two guards. And you have to wonder kind of in a sense if this was kind of an answer to the prayers in some way that the people were praying. Here's, here's Peter knowing what just happened to his brother in Christ. And here he is sleeping. <laughs> the next day he's going to be judged, possibly executed, and he's sleeping we got to think maybe there's some answer to prayer happening here. God sent us. So God sends this angel, wakes Peter up, tells him to get up. Chains fall off. He tells Peter to get dressed. Come on, follow me. And remember, we're thinking Peter's probably, what? And he thinks, no, this is a vision. This, is, this, this, isn't a real, this isn't a real experience, but I'm going to go with it. I'm dreaming. But then all of a sudden they keep moving. All of a sudden they, that they go on. They pass the guards who are presumably asleep at the time. Not a good thing. And they come to this iron gate and it's like the angel went, boop, boop, you know, things opened. And it seemed like they just opened on their own. And they go out into the city. Okay. And they realize that. And all of a sudden Peter goes, oh my gosh, now I get what's happened. I've been rescued. The Lord has rescued me. I can't believe this. So here's Peter. He's standing on the street, a free man by God's hand. Now what? <laughs> what would you do? What, what does Peter do? What, okay, now what do I do? Let's look at it. Look, look what he says in verse 12. 
When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So after Peter realizes what has happened, he heads to Mary's house. Most likely, this is where one of the house churches met. Remember, up to, up to this point, churches primarily met in people's homes. And remember what the, this house church was doing. What was this house church doing at that moment? They were praying. They were praying for Peter. Once again, this is a great lesson for us for why as a church we should be making prayer a priority. My friend Mark Mitchell says this. He says, the church is about people. People learning to relate with God, to love one another, and to be salt and light in the community. And in the, and in the early church, the way they did that was through small groups of believers meeting in homes where they could pray for one another and bear one another's burdens. Did you catch where, are you seeing a similarity? Maybe even something we talked about last week at our, at our congregational meeting that one of our goals for this year is that everyone would have the opportunity to be plugged into a relationship opportunity like a small group so they can be encouraged and they can be challenged in their walk with Christ and in their ministry to one another as a church so we can be the kind of church that truly reaches this, this town and this area and this coast, okay? That's, what, that's, what, that's what's going to help to do that. It was a place where we can spend time earnestly praying together for God's will to be done in our lives and in the lives of other people. Can you imagine what that'd be like to be in a regular group of people that you're constantly learning how to pray God's will? You're learning, how to, learning things about Jesus just through people's prayers. That's why prayer should not just be an add-on to what we do when we gather. Prayer should not, who's going to open in prayer? Okay, not that this is wrong, but who's going to open? Okay, would you close? That's okay. But I would, let me suggest that we make it more than that. Let me suggest that when we get together and we say, who will open up in prayer? Not every time, but who will open up in prayer? Everybody goes, I will, and we pray. Who wants to close? I will, and we pray. And we spend some time praying God's will. I know that's hard because we we're trying to, it's a balance between getting through what we want to do together and teaching and all that stuff. But just to put it in the back of your head, how vital prayer is. All right, let's look at the surprising events that happens as Peter arrives. This is kind of a funny story how, it, how this uh, wraps up here. Look at verse 13. He says, and when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. You must be out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him. They were amazed, but motioned to him, but, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to his brothers. And he departed went to another place. So, so here's Peter. Oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to that house church. I know they're, I'm sure they're probably praying for me. Goes and knocks on the gate. Servant girl Rhoda comes, probably said, who is it? And he probably said, Peter. And she went, <clears throat> but instead of opening, she runs back and she tells us, Peter, Peter's at Peter, Peter's at the gate. <laughs> and what does she get? What kind of response does she get? Her, she's really scoffed at, you know, nah, it can't be him. That's impossible. 
No way it can be him. That must be an angel. You're seeing, you're seeing things. This is what they tell her. Interesting, though. Isn't that interesting? That it seems having an angel at the door was more believable <laughs> than having Peter escape from prison. Isn't it interesting? Isn't, but here's the thing. Isn't that so like us, though? in our prayer life, we pray our hearts out for something or for something or someone. Yet, if we admit it, oftentimes deep down inside, we really don't expect God to answer, do we? We think, this is a long shot, God. I'm going to throw this out there. Yet, when he does answer that prayer, what? We're shocked, right? We're absolutely blown away. Here's what I think that this shows us. This really shows number seven on your notes, that even though we often display limited faith, God will still use that small faith to accomplish great things, even with our small faith. And that is what is happening here. I'm sure they're playing, oh God, please release Peter. That'd be awesome if he gets out. Peter? <laughs> what are you doing here? And I think we do the same thing, right? We really do. But isn't it great to know that God is just going to take even that little, tiny, little bit of faith that we got as limp and as whatever it seems, and he's going to use it. That's just, that's just awesome. Well, we see that meanwhile, P Peter's back, back there. He's continuing, you know, he was continuing to knock at the door. And they're, they're absolutely blown away by this. So you see that he, he comes in, he tells them, listen, I want you to pass this information on what all that happened. I want you to go tell uh, James and his brothers who are probably praying at another house church somewhere. And Peter leaves them. And Peter probably feels like, like I need to go lay low. <laughs> I need to go somewhere and lay low. We're not going to hear from him in about three or four more chapters in here. So now, as you can imagine, think about it, Peter being missing have, must be causing no small scene back at the prison. I think we've forgotten what's happened back at the prison, okay? Look at what it says in verse 18. Now when the day came, there was no little, dis little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, you think? And after Herod searched for them and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judah to Caesarea, to spend time there. Now, unfortunately for these guards, a common penalty for letting a prisoner escape, especially one that was deemed really important, was death. That's what it was for them. And here, and it, we're just left with that. Isn't that wild? We're just left with, wait, okay, these guys had to die. And then the chapter ends. It's like, so what, is, what is going on here? What is happening with, with it, the chapters, but that part of the story ends right there. But what, actually what we're going to see, though, is God really still working, okay? Look at verse 20, okay? We're actually, this is where now things turn to Herod, the fate of Herod. Listen to what it says, verse 20. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Sounds like he goes to a whole other story all of a sudden. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. 
And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Bartimaeus and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So, what this, just let me read this, the whole, what's, the, what's this all about all of a sudden? What, this, what we're seeing here is there's some kind of dispute between Herod and these two cities, Tyre and Sidon, over a, a food chain supply. You know, people got their food from his region, so there was some kind of dispute. But once this dispute is solved, they go basically through his main guy, and they, once it's resolved, resolved, we see that Herod goes and gives this speech. Okay, he's going to give this great speech pronouncing and, the, and commemorating this new arrangement that has happened. And we're not given, we're not told at all what he says. We're not told that he's this amazing orator or anything. Uh, but what we do see, a historian, Josephus, who actually gives us a lot of insight into this, he also recounts this event saying that what Herod did is he got up and he spoke and he put on his royal robes and he was on his throne. And actually his royal robes were made of silver. So they reflected the sun. The sun just gleamed off of his, um, glistened off of his royal robes. So for some reason, because of what he had said somehow, or the brightly glistening robes, the people started to compare him to a god. They started to say that you, he is not a mortal man. He is incredible. And we see that due to accepting their praise... And not giving the praise where praise is due and not rebuking the crowd, we see the Lord strikes him down in a way that can only be described as an extremely unpleasant death. And he's dead. And this chapter ends and it closes us by telling that despite all the persecution that the church has experienced, the good news of Jesus continues to expand and go forward. I got to tell you, Honestly, this is a weird and wild story with a lot of bizarre twists and turns in it, but I really think that it shows us something unique about God's sovereignty. It really does. It shows us that God's sovereignty is really a mystery. God's sovereignty is really a mystery. God's sovereignty, I mean, we've talked about this in the past. I'll tell you again real quick. It means that as the creator, as the ultimate creator, God has the power and the wisdom and the authority to do whatever he chooses to do within his creation. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's never frustrated. He's never helpless. Nothing's ever too big. He's never at a loss. Whenever he acts, he acts in a way that pleases him. That's what God being sovereign means. In Peter's case, or in this case, Peter is protected, Herod is struck down, and James suffers a martyr's death. Now, when we see all those things, we go, wow, that's mysterious. I don't don't understand that. And the truth, because the truth is we really can't explain God's ways. We can't explain, we can't explain the, the death, the, the early death of someone that in an accident or through cancer, we can't explain those things. And we're not supposed to necessarily be able to explain them. Yet though we might not understand why God does what he does, we can know that in the end, his purposes are being fulfilled. We can know that God ultimately has a purpose and a plan. Remember Romans 8, 28? And I know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
Now, we read read that verse and we go, how can that be good? It didn't feel good to me. But it works out for God's sovereign good. He's got a plan. He's not like, oh, darn. Never. We can know that everything is going to, it's going to, he is ultimately in control and it's working out for the good. His good. Even though it doesn't feel good, it's his good. That doesn't mean, though, here's the other thing that doesn't mean that we're supposed to sit back passively and let God's plan play out. Some people would say, okay, God's going to be sovereign. I'm going to sit back and just be a part of this and just watch what happens. No, that's not at all. This is what we've seen in here. Number eight, the last one on, on your notes. In what can only be seen as a mystery, God invites us to participate in his plan and purpose through prayer. That's what we see in this passage. God invites us to participate in this grand plan that he has for our lives and for the world through prayer. And here's the thing. Here's what really struck me this week. Oftentimes, the answer to those prayer is more about us learning to align our will to his. So often, how he answers our prayer is is we, we go, I don't get it, God. But I think we need to get what I'm learning from this passage and what I got out of this, at least, is that when we pray, the more we pray, the more we get the opportunity to be invited into understanding a little bit more what it means to not necessarily know why he does what he does, but to say, I'm okay with what he does because that's who he is. He is sovereign in my life and in the world. It's about learning to align our will to hers, his, learning to trust that he ultimately is in complete control. Philip Yancey says this, last quote, he says, life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. Prayer offers no ironclad guarantees, just the certain promise that we need not live that mystery alone. See what he's doing here? This passage is telling us we're not alone. We're joining God. We're joining with him. Let's do that. I want to just really encourage us and, and challenge us to learn to engage regularly in fervent prayer by ourselves, but with others as well. And also remember to give ourselves permission to, or the room really to be surprised by how God answers our prayers as he teaches us what it means to align our wills with his. That's what prayer, so much of what prayer is about. A couple questions I want to ask you. First one, and this is a good one maybe to share with the person next to you or around you. What makes it so tempting to make our plans and then invite God into them? <laughs> what may, instead of vice versa, share with someone right next to you, what makes it so, why, why is it so tempting at least to make our plans and then say, God, would you please bless this? Or would you do <laughs> what I would like to have done? Go ahead, share with someone, turn around if you need to. Just take a minute to do that.
All right, let's hear, a, let's hear a couple of these from you guys. I'm just really so curious here. Um, it's all, I'm sure it could, could be all over the map. What makes it so tempting to make our plans and then invite God into them instead of vice versa? What did what, you guys come up with? What did you hear? Yeah. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. What else? What else? Yes, oh, Carolyn. What do you mean by scary? Well, I was, we were just talking about my fear, of course, is the virus. Mm-hmm. And if I'm praying for myself, then I just, you know, dear Lord, keep it away from everybody. <laughs> Yeah. And acknowledging some of the things that yeah. could be happening yeah. through God's work yeah. through this virus. Yeah. Yeah. No, isn't it though? And that's a great one, Carolyn. You say fear is a big one, doesn't it? Fear drives us to pray very much like this, doesn't it? God, this is do this. This is what needs to be done. Now do it. Yeah, definitely. Good, good. Anything else on that one? I love these. Yeah, I'm pretty mature in my faith. I'm sure I'm praying exactly what you want. Yeah, to- totally. Yeah, totally. How crazy is that? Huh? Okay, sec- next question. Uh, how have you experienced, and maybe you might, this might take, this would be a great thing if we were breaking up and doing all this and we had more time and you'd known ahead of time, but how have you experienced learning about God's will through your prayer life? Is there anything you can think about how God has shaped this, your whole understanding about his will and the whole aligning your will with his as you've prayed and, or how God has answered a prayer. Anybody, can anybody think of anything right offhand? Yes, Carrie. Yeah, and it's more than just every cloud is a silver lining thing, right? It's really seeing God in it. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah, so good. Yeah. It's only you. No one else, Maria. So good. Yeah, that's such a great, that's great insight. Yeah. One more. Is there one more? Yes, Paul. Yeah, finding out afterwards <laughs> how much better his results are. <laughs> yeah. That happens, huh? <laughs> yeah. 
Good, good. And it, this, is, this is just one I want you to think about real quick. We don't talk about it, but because it's kind of, you'll know it. Um, how does it make you feel to know that God will still use your limited faith in order to accomplish great things and that he actually invites you to participate in his plan and purpose? I think this is something I'd like you to say as we move into communion here. How does it make, just think about that as you reflect as you reflect on Christ's sacrifice and what the sacrifice that Christ did, that what it's allowed us that to be able to go before the throne of heaven <laughs> because of what Jesus did. That's an amazing thing. And to know that our faith, is, we don't have to be oh, in our faith. We can just come crawling, limping, wounded, bleeding, and going... I don't have it, God. I just don't have it. But I trust. I, I know you. You're in this. Isn't that a great thing to know? We need to remind ourselves of that constantly and remind ourselves, too, that when we feel dry in our prayer and we don't want to pray that because of what Jesus did, we're invited in to be a participate in God's plan. Wow. God's saying, be a part. Come on, be a part. So I just want you to encourage you as we go to communion now, as we um, as go ahead and band can come on up, and as we think about that, as you come on up and as you want, like we said, just you come when you want, spend some time in your, in your seat if you'd like, and then come on up, take communion. Uh, I think Paul and someone else will be praying over here. No, Dwayne was, and Vera will be up here praying. Um, encourage you to get some prayer, some people uh, as well. But just spend some time with Jesus and reflecting on this whole thing of, of, of prayer. Okay, let me pray and we'll get right going. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you've modeled for us in some really interesting ways by letting us get a glimpse of the early church the, when it was brand new and the things that they went through. But what they learned, God, we want to soak that in. God, we're grateful. We're grateful for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made so that we could have this unrestricted, unlimited access to the Father. And not only that, that we're invited to be a part of your plan. And we're invited to learn what it means to align our will with yours through prayer. God, help us to be people of prayer. God, help us, please. We need your help in doing that.